0: I can't think of any place else where that kind of discussion would take place, and I can't think of any other movement, any other policy. Uh, when you talk about smart growth, it's not just whether or not you have putting bicycle paths on streets. I'm a bicyclist. I like those bicycle paths on streets. as we found in King County, my very last year, there's none of those bicycle paths went in poor neighborhood. not a one, not mm-hmm. a one. And we were stunned at that, uh, which helped explain some health outcome issues. And what an exciting time. Again. With smart growth, I can be optimistic. I really can It's a change agent because it demands equality. It demands experimentation. It demands cutting edge. Will there be mistakes? The answer is yes. But there will be far more wins than losses with people who believe in smart growth and how to achieve it. And it provides opportunities for a variety of disciplines to work seamlessly for an
1: outcome. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive, and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancock's and Bernice Miller-Travis.
2: Hi there, and welcome to this week's episode of Infinite Earth Radio, where each week we interview thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities.
3: Our guest today is the Honorable Ron Sims. From 2009 to 2011, Mr. Sims served as the Deputy Secretary for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. As the second most senior official at HUD, Ron Sims managed the day-to-day operations of an agency with 8,500 employees and an operating budget of nearly $40 billion. Prior to his appointment at HUD, Mr. Sims served for 12 years as the elected executive of Martin Luther King, Jr. County, formerly known as King County in Washington State, the 13th largest county in the nation with over 2 million residents and 39 cities, including the cities of Seattle, Bellevue, and Redmond. As County Executive, Ron Sims was nationally recognized for his work on the integration of environmental, social equity, and public health policies that produce groundbreaking work on climate change and health care reform. Mr. Sims currently serves as the Chair of the Washington Health Benefit Exchange Board the board responsible for the implementation of the Affordable Care Act in Washington State. Mr. Sims is also on the Board of Regents of Washington State University and the Board of Directors of the Washington Health Alliance, a nonprofit organization he helped found where employers, physicians, hospitals, patients, health plan providers and others from throughout the region come together to improve health care quality, affordable housing, mass transit, environmental protection, land use, and equity and social justice. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us today, Ron.
0: Thank you very much, and I look forward to the discussion that we're going to have.
2: Wow, that was a very impressive resume, Mr. Sims. I have, over your career, been a tireless champion for both the environment and for social justice. Can you tell us a little bit about your background growing up and and what motivates you to to work so hard on these issues?
0: Well, I grew up during an era uh, in Spokane, Washington, where they – Racial divisions were very profound and deep, and I had the joy and the honor and the privilege of having two incredible parents, my mom and dad, who were civil rights leaders at a time when that was unwelcome. But I noticed that they always brought people together. It was kind of a collaborative process, trying to find a common ground but they also had a goal. So it wasn't an issue of changing the goal. The issue was making sure that you had an integrated group of voices, whether it was the Jewish community, the Native American community, the progressive community, all at the moving in a concerted fashion using a variety of talents. Some people could lead, some people could follow, some people could make signs, some people were better organizers, but it was a collaborative process that move what we always call the equity agenda in Spokane forward in a very significant way. It refashioned Spokane in many respects, changed the community that was quite resistant. But they created with this is, a small group of people, an inevitable tide of change. And when you grow up in that environment, when you realize that, you know, you're called a lot of names and none of them are names you're recognized or some you know, they're not your names that you're You were given at your birth, but there were a variety of other names. When you realize restraint and determination, that's what they provided me, and I never lost that. I had great tutors. I had great teachers, and they just happened to be my mom and dad.
2: Early in your career as a council member for King County, you led an effort to formally change the name of King County. And I know that Bernice and I, in doing our research for the show, were a little confused about the history of that movement, and kind of the current status of the name of King County. Could you share with our audience a little bit about that?
0: Oh, certainly. King County was named after Vice President Rufus Devane King, who actually was a senator from Alabama in the mid-1800s. And he himself owned, or his family owned, slaves. The state of Washington, when it was looking for states, it was a territory, so Washington Territory, began to name its counties after presidents as a way of courting Congress. So King County was named after Rufus Devane King. There used to be, he's passed away, but a writer named Shelby Skates for one of the newspapers. And every time we celebrated Dr. King's birthday, he would say, Why isn't King County named after? Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. We have a lot of counties here named after Native Americans. We have counties named and areas named after people who were conquerors here, but none after an African-American. So a Republican county council member, Bruce Lang, walked down the hall and handed me Shelby Skates. It was his annual request to rename King County and said, we should do this. So a council member, Bruce Lang, who was an Eastside Republican, and myself, began to organize the council. And and it was interesting. At first, the first memos I remember uh, writing were basically saying we're moving away from the slave master's name to uh, to the celebration of uh, Dr. King. Bruce Lang, who had Jesuit training, basically said, "No, let's not do that. Let's just talk about the life of Dr. King and why we should aspire to that, not only now, but in the future. So we moved forward with the renaming. There were a lot of issues. Could King County self-rename itself? And the answer was probably not, but we were going to do it anyway. Could we have our own flag? The answer was yes. Could we change our stationery? Yes. And on a 5-4 to vote, that was very contentious, but was interesting. The conservatives wanted to do the renaming. Some of my colleagues who were more liberal did not, so we renamed King County by right, the five to four vote, King County, and basically embodied in that the aspirations, of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King County. My neighbor in this, in Seattle, was a state senator, and from that time on, for 12 years, he introduced the renaming of King County, and it was always defeated at our state capitol. Nobody wanted to rename a county after Reverend Dr. King. And then Governor Gregoire, who was just elected, was her first term, made a request that this annual but very frustrating piece of legislation not be stopped and that King County be named. And I'll never forget my neighbor calling me on the phone saying, we won, and then the governor saying, I want to come up, and I want to sign the bill in the uh, King County Courthouse. And so my neighbor's efforts, Senator Adam Klein, And then Governor Gregoire, she came up and signed the bill that officially and legally changed changed King County's name, the history of it, or its reason for naming, from Rufus Devane King, a slave owner who basically ran on a pro-slavery ticket to the person who was emancipating us to this day, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. It was a wonderful moment.
3: Yeah, I I can
2: only imagine. So the official name is still King County, but it is now King County named after Dr. Martin Luther King.
0: That is correct. So all of the uh, images of King County on the sides of on our stationery, when you get married here, the logo, the logo is the image, a beautiful image done by an African American graphic artist here. Of Dr. King, and it's widely accepted. People look at the King County car. There's a great deal of pride taken in the area that we are named after Dr. King. But remember, we're also in a, a community where cities and counties are named after Native Americans. So it was, this area is very unique in that way of always trying to find a way to expand its footing and recognize the role that other races and other cultures have placed at uh, allowing this area to grow so very well. But it was, for whatever reason, I mean, we had opposition, honestly, to the renaming of Dr. King, but Councilmember Bruce Lang was determined that we were going to be named Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King County, and the most conservative member of the council who was from an area in Seattle that had long resisted welcoming other people and other He was very, very conservative. One day he said, "If you want that to pass, I'm on vacation next week. But the week after that, I'll be back." So two, uh, two weeks <laughs> postponement, and it passed. And you know, and but he also asked for something, which was he wanted to be the person responsible for the flag that has Dr. King's image on it. And he did a remarkable job. Of working with graphic artists and other artists to change the county's flag as well, which led to the stationery changes and all the other local changes that say that we are Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King County. We're the only county in the United States named after an African American, uh, which is fascinating. The only county, uh, wow. and people are always surprised when they because they want to call it King's County, and we said no, we're not King's County. We're Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King county, and it was a great statement to make, but it was a, a, a very collaborative effort among people who would, you would least suspect to be on your side.
2: What a great story.
0: To contribute to, I think, we will and shortly be talking about you know, sustainability and, and equity and social justice, but it's, again, you know, something my parents taught. You know, Always work collaboratively. You'll, you can be surprised at who your friends are.
3: This is a fascinating story, and we could spend the whole podcast talking about just this issue and what it portends for the future of King County, Martin Luther King County, Washington. But we want to switch a little to talk about the upcoming 2016 New Partners for Smart Growth Conference, and this podcast is pre-recorded but will be broadcast on February 11th, which is the opening day of the 2016 New Partners for Smart Growth Conference in Portland, Oregon. And you, Ron Sims, will be giving the keynote address during the opening plenary and panel discussion. Your topic is Outliers, the Story of Equitable Development Success. Can you share with our listeners the major themes or takeaways of your keynote?
0: I think two things. One is I am going to point out that America went through a very pronounced and very concerted effort to create disparities and many of them are still existing today. There was a Seattle has a documented history of choosing one area to make investments in and provide opportunities and then another one for for foreclosing opportunities for home ownership for people of color. And that as a nation we've done that. We went through that period. The issue is how do we change that? How do we build in social equity and social justice? And it's interesting because we now find The data is so overwhelming on outcomes that in King County we looked at ourselves and and a group of demographers that we had and statisticians in a variety of our departments began to say, could we predict life outcomes by zip code? And we found out we could with incredible precision. And the issue was that zip codes should never be a life determinant. They should only be an address. And we began to develop models for how you would affect so you can't have smart growth, which is often talked about in new technology firms, without actually beginning to say who lost and how do we remedy and how do we provide opportunities for changes in their community so that they can aspire, have stable households, reductions in tribes, children who learn very, very well. So smart growth, I think, is what I always call the change agent for the texture of this
3: country. Thank you for that. So your new Partners for Smart Growth conference session acknowledges that the conversation about social equity in the context of the built environment seemed elusive in years past. But now there is a growing shift where experts and advocates are realizing that good redevelopment and meeting the needs of underserved communities can no longer afford to be mutually exclusive. So, why do you think that the folks who have for a long time been focused on improving the built and natural environments are only now realizing that the key to improving our physical environment is greater economic and social inclusion for historically underserved and disadvantaged communities?
0: It's the inevitability of change. It's really interesting. Everybody starts with noble intentions. We all do. And then we find out there's hard work behind it because all the noble intentions that people had, all the incredible work they did, did not fundamentally change the lives of people in many neighborhoods. And then we said, well, you know, they should move. Whoa, hold a second. Why should they move? Why isn't their neighborhood as good as other neighborhoods, whether it's transit service, parks, or playgrounds, or safety, a variety of housing types, there's all kinds of things that make a neighborhood. And we were still, after all this time, talking about smart growth, but we weren't talking about every neighborhood being a beneficiary of it. So now, you know, because we have large populations, and many of them are people of color, but many of them are just people on an income base, and we cannot have winners and losers and say that's smart growth. That is good intentions, but it isn't smart for the people who lose, and we cannot be a nation of winners and losers. And I think what I actually enjoy is seeing this title change, because in the past, when many of us were mentioning it, people thought it was an aside. And we were actually, without realizing it wasn't an aside, we were really serious. There were losers. How could we have a smart growth movement that allowed for people to lose? And it was conscious, and the data screamed out loud. So we started at a very good place smart growth, which was actually in itself a major change and a radical one because everybody thought smart growth, I mean, everybody thought growth was we'll build houses forever, we'll build the freeways to get there, we will chop down forests and plow ground and all of those things. To actually having, but part of that wasn't smart growth. The issue was how do you have smart densities, how do you have really strong core cities, so we're now in a period of time where I think a number of issues have basically began to come to in place that have demanded a rethink. But smart growth is the in this conference are the places where that is being more widely discussed and accepted. And I'm excited because it means over the next 10 to 20 years, yes, we will learn more. But we will see the making of a different kind of community than exists today, and there will be far more winners in those communities than losers.
3: So, Ron, can you share with our audience where you see or where you have seen the biggest advances currently being made on issues of access to economic and social inclusion at the municipal level?
0: I think that every city's tried, so I'm not going to condemn any cities or areas. Well, let me tell you something that really, I'll give an example of a big debate we're having in this community in Seattle. We're now talking, the issue has been, what do geneticists, epigeneticists, and public health officials now tell us about communities? And earlier in my remarks, I talked about how we could tell you who is going to get sick at what age, the issue of morbidity rates, children's illnesses with just a variety of things. We could tell you that were health-related. We can also tell you from the school data what schools would work and what schools would not work. We could tell you why communities, which communities were going to be predictably dysfunctional, what the lifetime earnings of children would be. And we consider that to be some other causal effect, you know, their family instability. And yet, when you move the family to a better neighborhood, as we would call it, with parks playgrounds and greenways, two things happen. One is the crime rate for that demographic changed dramatically, and that is by 70 percent. So, you know, all of a sudden you take the same families and you move them and the crime rate drops. Why? Because they're in a sustainable neighborhood. We call them good neighborhoods. Why do kids learn suddenly in those neighborhoods? And the data now screams out loud. Now we realize from epigeneticists and geneticists that those are physical changes that are undertaken by the body itself, both with adults and for children. So now we realize, whoa, hold a second, we've spent a lot of money trying to change our school system without realizing that a, something like a cortisol, which is a chemical in the blood, if you have high cortisol levels, you don't learn the same way as people with lower cortisol levels. Cortisol is brought about by stress. Stress is caused by fear. So kids who grew up in a thirdly neighborhood go to a school now, if they're in a school with kids who have lower cortisol levels, the kid next to them with lower cortisol levels is learning everything that teacher is saying. The kid with high level uh, cortisols, we know, is, uh, from all the research, is impeded from doing that. So the issue is rather than spend all that money screaming and yelling at teachers telling them they can't teach, the issue is why don't we then alter the neighborhood those kids are growing up in? Because we know by doing that, it changes a life outcome physically mentally performance-based, it is very significant. I once said that no one gave elected officials and planners the right to play with people's genes, and yet now we know they did it in an incredibly consequential way, and we need to change that. We can no longer accept that we tried, it didn't work. The issue is, did we literally, literally put in the mechanism that allowed people to feel safe? to walk in their neighborhoods, to exercise in their neighborhoods, to have parks and playgrounds and community gathering points in their neighborhood. And if we don't have those features, then we know that we are basically going to have some really adverse consequences. We won't be smart growth. We'll be what we've done in the past, and the issues is to evolve from that, from our experiences and our new information. But the key was to invite other sciences in to take a good look at it and say, what does this mean? And we're finding out that whether you're in an engineer designing a building or a roadway or whether or not you are a home, whether you're a parks planner, whether you are in criminal justice. I remember the Justice Department meeting with me when I was a deputy secretary saying, how do you explain looking at the exact same demographics by race and income and all that and saying these huge swings in crime rates even when people move? And I said, oh, you know, I, I quipped, I said, you know, we, we evolved in grasslands, and they said, oh, we can't go to the attorney general and say that. I said, no, no, no. What I really meant is that the inputs that we're getting, some environments convey safety and some convey fear. And when we have fearful ones, we see a much different behavior, gangs, high dropout rates, angry kids. When we have a safe environment, we see just the opposite. I said, we don't know why. Now we do know why, but I said at the time, we don't know why. And that's why I believe smart growth is so right on time now because smart growth does what it's supposed to do. It really changes how we impact the lives of other human beings. Oh, my God. We would see some really radical, in my opinion, changes and results in every community because all of a sudden you will see people flourishing and you say, Wow! I didn't know that that's all it took. And you know, we're going, but they didn't have it. I remember the country was segregated for a long time, for a long period of time in our history. And we have neighborhoods that are predominantly neighborhoods of color. Neighborhoods where people are predominantly poor. We have people at a disadvantage. And the issue is, as long as those neighborhoods persist without a substantial amount of reinvestment, we will lose. Smart growth is the catalyst for that change. This was so exciting. I wish I was young again i of just have to say, wow, i got another 20 to 30 years to tackle this. But, wow, the people who now are in the smart growth movement, uh, the opportunity has never been greater to see a transformation of this country in ways that are going to be unbelievable, stunning.
2: You know, Bernice and I have long lamented the fact that, you know, many of the communities that we've worked in, the economies are so fundamentally broken as a result of these past actions you talk about taken by individuals, businesses, government, local and federal government, that some of them were intentionally designed to hold people back or exclude them. And, you know, some of them were maybe uh, benign neglect. But the result is that there are, you know, there are these communities all over the country that where the infrastructure investment and the economy is so fundamentally broken that it's we often think that the efforts being made to help these communities or to get them back in the game are just really way too small to have any real long-term effect, almost like we're making enough investment to maintain poor conditions or maintain kind of lifelong dependencies or multi-generational dependencies. So how do we make the kind of progress that you're talking about? How do we address these issues at a level that really We're making the levels of investment that will actually fundamentally move the needle. How do we get that to happen, particularly given our current political
0: climate? I believe that you're going to see more work from another field, which is going to be economists, that are going to talk about what are the economic benefits from communities that have undergone change, where the cost to society and cost to dollars and cents cost to how a city operates or an area operates, are more expensive when those communities are not dysfunctional, but are way more, we call a rate of return is much higher when all of a sudden we make the kind of investments being proposed by many smart growth advocates. It's interesting, we always say in poor areas there's not much of an economy, and the answer is, no, there actually is, which is really interesting because when you begin to make the changes, you see new entrepreneurs anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world, all of a sudden they're there, I mean, Southeast Seattle, and this is the area that Mayor Norm Rice, County Executive, Governor, and Secretary Gary Locke lived in, and I came from. We all lived in Southeast Seattle, because if you were a person of color, that's the only places you had opportunities to buy homes. We all were part of a group called Southeast Effective Development, which was a community-based nonprofit group. People tried to close down for years. You know, we were always considered to be too radical and annoying, but we had mastered the block grant system. We had mastered how to organize and get people to fight for a park and then for school parks and then stoplights and stop signs and then health clinics. It was a matter of organizing people to do that. And so now we were, we were all one day talking about how we started at this Gary, Ron, and Norm and look at the fundamental changes to Southeast Seattle. But even though people have moved down here with money, there were people who were already here who were the people who were the storekeepers and now they have been able to improve their stores because they have more money coming in. But there was always an economy down here. And I always say the issue with smart growth is to capitalize on the existing economies and then attract new money. And when both are done really, really well, communities change. You can't do one or the other, you have to do both. And I think all across the country, when we look at communities that have been turned around, we realize that somebody capitalized. We be I remember somebody used to saying, poor people will not buy fresh food. I'll never forget hearing that. I was going, you've got to be kidding. And uh, they said, no. So that's why we have the kind of supermarkets we had. Well, people forgot that immigrants, which are a large group here, actually don't like processed food. So they have fresh food in their markets. So we in King County... I had what we call a program, Puget Sound Fresh, which basically provided opportunities for farmers in the Puget Sound area to sell their goods at markets that we would establish once a week throughout the county, but it would be a four-month season. And we had a group of markets called the Million Dollar Markets. That is, that were the total sales at the end of being here once a week. For 12 consecutive weeks, would result in the, all the farmers or all the, the vendors having one million dollars or more, and Southeast Seattle's market was one of them, and that stunned people. It stunned when we found out within in an area that we called North Highline, which is in West Seattle, that all of a sudden we said, "But people were always buying fresh product." The interesting thing that happened is that the grocery stores here began to say, we gotta put fresh food out. <laughs> and we have, I mean, everything changed. The retail and everything changed because they realized that that demand was there. People will pay more. They may not like the cost of it, but if it's fresh and it's going to be healthy for their kids, they would spend that money there. And so, that's, I've always said we've always discounted the amount of money that actually exists. The issue is how it's spent what opportunities people have to spend it for a better life. The same thing is true on the HUD side when we talk about housing. People say, put a poor person in a the house, they can't keep it up. Now we find out, yeah, they actually do keep it up. If you put them in a terrible house, it's hard to be in a bad house and say, how do you keep up a bad house? But you put them in houses where you're saying to people, this is affordable, whether it's a Section 8 house, a HUD home, a number of housing programs have programs in this area and in other parts of the country to provide adequate housing for people. you find there's good upkeep. But if the owner wants to not make the investment and take it and use it elsewhere, it's really hard for people in those buildings to say, all the money I'm paying, this is all I'm getting, and they're not going to want to pay any more. And then you fall. We end up with communities that are deteriorating. So I always say that, We need, and I think the Smart Growth Movement does that very well, is it begins to recognize that we're not talking about waiting for the infusion of new dollars. We're talking about the remobilization of dollars that exist and then building upon it.
3: One last question about your time as county executive. You issued a call to action behind the King County Equity and Social Justice Initiative. Can you tell our listeners what the Equity and Social Justice Initiative is trying to accomplish, and how is it working?
0: The Equity and Social Justice Initiative, King County adopted an ordinance, and the ordinance basically says we'll never make somebody else's life worse. That our goal is to make sure that everybody would have a high quality of life no matter what neighborhood they're in. And so, therefore, rather than talk about all neighborhoods being equal in terms of investments, we said we would make up, we would move more money into neighborhoods that we're in, has been long neglected, and that we would put services in and that we would invite the nonprofit sector, which they did, and the library systems and the park systems, and we would break the silos that existed between school districts and the county and the nonprofits and health agencies, and so that we would treat individuals at their wholeness. And it's worked out really, really well, and it's become a way of doing business not only here, but throughout all of King County. All the cities are doing that. City of Seattle is doing that. Are, are we perfect? The answer is no, we're not. You know, we still have a homelessness and it's uh, we have more people in hard, we call hard facilities, apartments and stuff. But we still have a lot of people who we still, you know, are either in tents overnight. I wish we could deal with more of that. But we have moved mightily. Data sets and the study of those data sets need to determine policy. Smart growth is the... One vehicle that you see data, people being comfortable with it. I mean, really being comfortable. And sometimes the data is going to bring a smile to your face, and sometimes it's going to add one more gray hair. But you cannot have smart growth. You cannot have social justice unless you're looking at the data. And you're looking at the data not as what you wish the data to tell you, but sometimes the stark truth, what does it say? And if you see a problem, if you see that we still have rates of failure here, which goes back to issues of getting the epigeneticists and the public health people and the geneticists and the educators in the room talking to each other, along with the housing planners and builders, the people who do park systems, the people who do transit systems, and say, why aren't we working collaboratively? Because if we make these adjustments, do you realize that we change the life outcomes of children? They become high performers in school. We always want to tell people whose primary language are not English. We always kind of chide them. People still say, speak English, speak English. But we now realize that having children taught a complex subject in a foreign language is far more beneficial to them than having it taught in a language that they already speak they may speak it poorly. So the idea is, why don't we go ahead and encourage second languages like the rest of the world does, but we know that kids will learn better. So there's all these tools now and data now that once you incorporate it, people say, well, why is second language a smart growth philosophy? Remember, I keep talking about the integrity of a neighborhood. A neighborhood needs stability. It has to be where people live. Its schools have to work. Its markets must work. Its transit systems must work. Its police officers have to be a lot less fearful. I um, mean, there's a whole series of things it takes for smart growth to work. But I can't think of any place else where that kind of discussion would take place. And I can't think of any other movement, any other policy. Uh, when you talk about smart growth, it's not just whether or not you have putting bicycle paths on streets. I'm a bicyclist. I like those bicycle paths on streets. As we found in King County my very last year, there's none of those bicycle paths went in a poor neighborhood. Not a one. Not mm-hmm. a one. And we were stunned at that, which helped explain some health outcome issues. What an exciting time again. With smart growth, I can be optimistic. I really can It's a change agent because it demands equality. It demands experimentation. demands cutting edge. Will there be mistakes? The answer is yes, but there will be far more wins than losses with people who believe in smart growth and how to achieve it. And it provides opportunities for a variety of disciplines
3: to work seamlessly for an outcome. So we have three short, lightning round questions that are designed for short answers that we want to pose to you. And the first one is, if you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be?
0: I would measure transit service in poor areas. Transit service works in poor areas, provides opportunities.
3: Invest in public transportation? Yes. Yes what one action could our listeners take to help build a more equitable and sustainable future?
0: Look at their disciplines and apply their disciplines of study and skill to how would they improve a community with it.
3: And lastly, if you are successful in the work that you're doing, what does Martin Luther King, Jr., King County, Washington look like 30 years from now?
0: It will celebrate on a constant basis its diversity of language, race and ways that the rest of the world would just marvel
3: thank you Ron we want to thank you so very much for joining us and spending this time with us
2: unfortunately we have run out of time for this week thank you all for listening and we look forward to seeing you all again on the next episode of Infinite Earth Radio
1: Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at InfiniteEarthRadio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at InfiniteEarthRadio.